0: and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each of us. Peace be with you. Friends, we have today this wonderful feast of the Holy Family. We have a lot of people telling us what makes a family, you know, integrated, psychologically healthy. But what's interesting about today is we look into the mystery of what makes a family holy. And the Church gives us now, our first reading, that wonderful, wonderful story about Hannah. You'll find it in the first book of Samuel. I might urge people who've been away from the Bible for a while, take out 1 Samuel, read just the first you know, couple of chapters. You'll find this, uh, this really beautiful story. But it's more than just a beautiful story. It tells us a very deep truth about what makes a family holy. So we're told of a man named Elkanah and his two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Now, the former had given him lots of children, and the latter, Hannah, remained childless. So, on a regular basis, the uh, family went up to worship the Lord at the temple in Shiloh. Now, this is way before we have the Jerusalem temple that was built by David's son, Solomon. But at the time, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the temple of Shiloh. So up they went, and Hannah, on a regular basis, would beg the Lord. Beg the Lord for a child. Now, though she was barren, Elkanah loved Hannah with a very special devotion. And we know from a variety of stories in the Bible that a sterile woman was considered a kind of pathetic figure, someone of a very low social status. So Hannah would pray. Well, we hear that Elkanah came over to her and said, Well, why, why do you grieve? Am I not more to you than ten sons? <laughs> of course, the answer is evidently not, Elkanah. Uh, you know, the theme of the, of the sterile woman, It's very common in the Bible. Think of Rebecca. think of Rachel, think of the mother of Samson, who's never named. In the New Testament, think of Elizabeth. So all these these women who seem incapable of having a child, but who, through the grace of God, uh, become pregnant and give birth. The Bible is trying to tell us, over and again, that God works through the weakest and most despised and that what we consider suffering is, for him, very often, the point of entry. That, I think, everybody, is a super important point in the spiritual life. So we, we're going through our lives and we say, Oh, why is this happening to me? And why can't I have what I want? Frustrated. I'm sure many listening to me have done what Hannah did, gone to a sacred place and said, Lord, please, Lord, I'm, I'm lost. But see, very often, it's precisely that suffering which is God's point of entry. So listen to Hannah's beautiful prayer. If you look with pity, O Lord, on the misery of your handmaid, if you give your handmaid a male child, I will give him to the Lord as long as he lives. So she's making a kind of a deal here. If you give me what I want, I will return this child to you. There's almost a comic relief moment in the story, as as Hannah is praying, and she's weeping, and she's moving her lips. She's spied by the high priest of Shiloh, a man named Eli. Displaying even worse pastoral sensitivity than her husband, Eli upbraids her. How long will you make a drunken show of yourself? Sober up from your wine. So he thinks this poor woman is drunk. But Hannah, with great dignity and self-possession, explains, I have had neither wine nor liquor. I was only pouring out my troubles to the Lord. Now, it's a wonderful irony here, isn't there, because here's the official high priest of Israel. I think the holiest guy in the country. But in fact, he's sort of the 'er ne'er-do-well, while this lowly, sterile woman is the vehicle through whom God will act. See how the Bible always turns things upside down, upsets our expectations, compels us to look at the most difficult things as, in fact, the point of grace. So the Lord heard the prayer of Hannah. She gives birth to a son, whom she named Samuel, Samuel, which means the name of God. And the point seems to be that this child from the beginning has been claimed by God. Now, once the child was weaned, so you know, the kid is pretty young, no more than, I don't know, a year or two. She returns to Shiloh and gives Samuel to Eli. So, she's utterly faithful to the promise she made. Lord, you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I I love this now in the uh, story of Hannah. Having presented her beloved son, her her sought-after son, she gives voice to one of the most beautiful prayers or hymns in the Bible. In fact, it's the canticle after which the Canticle of Mary in the Gospel of Luke was modeled. She is, in a certain sense, praising herself, but only as a vehicle of God. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in my God. Again, notice how like this is to Mary's, My soul doth magnify the Lord. See, Hannah and Mary are similar figures. Mary, too, she's a virgin. How can she give birth? And both express this uh, praise of the Lord. Now, what are we seeing here? What are we seeing? Something I've talked about a lot before, something I learned from St. John Paul II, the law of the gift. And I've always said, take this one to the bank, everybody. You're trying to find a, a law for the spiritual life. This is it. And here's how I'd state it. Your being increases in the measure that you give it away. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in my God. My soul doth magnify the Lord. See what all that is saying is precisely at the moment when you give what God has given to you, it's precisely at that moment that you are exalted, that you are lifted up. It goes precisely contrary to all of our expectations, that happiness comes from filling up ourselves filling up what we think we're lacking. In fact, it's just the contrary. Your soul will magnify the Lord. Your heart will be exalted precisely when you give back to God what God has given to you. We have that wonderful and typically biblical rejoicing in reversal. So, Hannah, "...the bows of the mighty are broken, while the tottering gird on strength. The barren wife bears seven sons, while the mother of many languishes. The mighty, the truly mighty, are those who have given away what God has given to them. Where well, we always think, oh no, the mighty are those who have filled themselves with the goods of the world. No, no, on the contrary. So, the disciples give away the little they have and they find it multiplied unto the feeding of 5,000. The widow of Zarephath gives Elijah the little she has and she finds the oil and flour multiplied. We notice, too, in the story, Hannah is rewarded with five more children, three sons and two daughters. Your being increases in the measure that you give it away. Now, here's here's what I've been driving at in this whole sermon. The peculiarly biblical family values on display in this narrative I'm suggesting that what we talk about as family values, as important as they are, I'm not making fun of them by any means, but there's a kind of peculiar quality of biblical family values. Here it is. The family exists not for the benefit of the family members primarily, but rather for God and God's purposes. Let me say it again. The family exists not primarily for the benefit of the family members, but rather for God, and for God's purposes. So Hannah does not treat Samuel as a vehicle of her own advancement or as an object of manipulation. Rather, she lets him go for God's service. Your life is not about you. The family is not about itself. Rather, if I put it this way, the family is a place where the missions of each family member are discerned and prepared for. Now, with all that in mind, let's go to the Gospel for today. This this endlessly fascinating story of um, the 12-year-old Jesus being left behind in Jerusalem, and then his parents searching desperately for him, and then being found in the temple. Were Mary and Joseph deeply upset by his disappearance? Well, yeah, of course. Can you imagine now, parents listening to me, can you imagine their anguish? in the course of three days as they searched desperately in the holy city. You know, if, if a child of yours is missing, and th- there's almost nothing worse for a parent than that. Can you imagine their psychological torment? Did they sleep? Can you imagine three days, three full days and nights, probably imagining the worst? Torture, psychologically. And therefore, from a purely natural standpoint, their exasperation upon finally finding their child was understandable indeed. Mary says, didn't you know your father and I were searching for you? And again, from a purely natural perspective, how sometimes even callous or cruel the response of a child Jesus can seem. Well, didn't you know? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? That's right. A lot of people, they find this gospel fascinating and off-putting at the same time. I I don't get it. But what's the point that's being made? There is something more important than the natural or the merely psychological. And when we put our finger on that, we, we understand precisely what makes a family holy, namely, surrendering to the will and purpose of God. You see the parallel between Hannah, who offers her son in the temple, And now, Jesus, who has come to the temple to offer himself. Surrendering to the will and purpose of God, finding your mission, that's what makes a family holy. So lots and lots of people, as I said, will tell you what makes a family well-adjusted, functional, peaceful. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. I'm in favor of it. But see, the Church is interested in something more, in something deeper. The Church wants a family to be holy. And that means the law of the gift. Your being will increase in the measure that you give it away. Here's the irony, I'll close with this. What actually makes a family more psychologically adjusted is when they understand this principle. Let go of each other in a way and give each other to God, and your family will be holy and actually happier. And God bless you.